everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 439, Shooting the Shot with Nick Ponzi. Chillians, and welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Eddie. Eddie, how's it going? Yeah, things are going pretty well. I mean, it's the European transfer window in, in football is coming to an end, so I am spending far too much time just updating social media accounts and message boards and Reddit like threads just to see if some breaking news is coming in. But aside from that, things are going fairly well. The- what I dislike most about the European transfer window here every year is there's so much speculation minute by minute. And you're right. I've done it too. You'll waste time being like, oh, wait, he might be going here. Oh, no, wait, no, that's not true. Oh, wait, he might be going here though. Oh, wait, that's not true either. Whereas if you just didn't pay attention and just waited till it was over and looked, you would have saved hours and of annoyance of your life. <laughs> A hundred percent. And and look, I mean, it's part of the problem is, you know, with the way the 24 hour news cycles have taken over every aspect of our lives, but sports. So they have to fill time and build towards this climactic end to the transfer window. And then you now have journalists like that didn't exist when we were kids, whose only job is to report on transfers and be, you know, in the know and just talking to people. And so they, they have to like, if you want to keep that going as your job, you can't get called up by Sky Sports or whatever and say, well, nothing to report today. You have to say, I've heard Cristiano Ronaldo might be leaving. Like, you know, it's in your self-interest yeah. to create rumors. I always remember um, I was part of a message board on a previous podcast that I was on when we just spoke about Blackburn Rovers. But we, we had a journalist, um, a pretty reputable journalist in the UK, Alan Nixon. Uh, he always used to refer to it. I think it's a pretty good rule maybe for our listeners. He used to call it the rule of three, which was basically if you ever read a transfer rumor in European football in which three clubs are mentioned, as in like three possible destinations, then that is just an agent trying to <laughs> drum up interest either for internal contract negotiations or because they do want to leave. But basically, if you apply the rule of three, so if you hear like Cristiano Ronaldo might be going to PSG, Dortmund, or Sporting Lisbon, probably going nowhere but if you just get the one or at most two clubs being linked you've got a possibility i thought you're gonna say the rule of three in journalism and i was like eddie i don't think he uh made that one up i think that's no. a pretty well-known rule of journalism that many places follow um, no and he maybe he didn't make this up but he certainly in in my circles he certainly made it famous but i guess you know drumming up entertainment is a good way to to mention that at the end of this interview, we'll have our guest, uh, Nick Ponzio, who is yeah. a, a um, American throwing for Italy as a shot putter, um, who is 100% Italian-American and is a very entertaining character. And it was a really fun interview. Yeah, really. No, yeah, really interesting to talk to him. Obviously, you know, like uh, I think we're always our goal is to speak to people who where our listeners can learn a little bit more about maybe a sport that they don't follow on a consistent basis, but everyone will have seen, right? Like everyone, I think it's 
you know, one of the premier events, if you are watching the Olympics or the World Athletics Championships or the Commonwealth Games or the European Championships that were recently, you know, you shot putting is one of those things that always gets people interested. So easy to understand, but obviously very difficult to do. And yeah, really interesting to speak to him about both the life of a shot putter, how he came to represent Italy, and then also just the, you know, he's got his very unique personality and identity that spills over, I think, into the interview itself, but also into everything he does as a, as a thrower. And so, yeah, it's definitely worth sticking around for. And so we talk about everything from, you know, throwing heavy objects to eating tons of food. So it, there's, just, there's yeah. something there for, for even the non-shot put aficionados. Yeah. I mean, he also goes by Chubby Diamonds and, and Nikki Tuchins. So that's just giving you an indication of, of the type of personality that you're going to hear in the interview. But uh, he, he, he brought up Hayward Field, which is, uh, for those who don't know, the most famous track facility in the United States. It's University of Oregon's track facility. And that's where this year's world championships were, which a lot of people were so excited for because national championships are there every year for the U.S., but to have world championships is, is special. And it's just, it's just like a very special place for track and field. And um, when I was a thrower, I was able to go to Hayward Field and compete at a meet in Hayward Field. Uh, I was, I think, I want to say either a junior or a senior at the time. And it was one of our first meets of the year. And we traveled to, to Oregon and I got there and I was like so excited, you know, finally able to throw at Hayward Field. This would be so cool. This is, this is so awesome. And we had warm ups the day before and it went really well and I felt really good. And then the day of the meet, it started to rain. And I am not a big guy by any means. Uh, when you listen to the interview, you, you can tell you can Nick Ponzio probably has about 150 pounds on me, but he's a shot putter. But even hammer and three throwers, inches. Yeah, and 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 an inch, uh, but <laughs> but even hammer throwers for the most part are were much bigger than I was. I mean, I was five eleven and a half, two hundred, two hundred five. You know, most are at least pushing two fifty and and taller. So the one thing I had for me was speed. But when it rains, you have to obviously slow down your your steps, so you kind of lose a lot of any advantage I had. I lost, and I was a head case. So as soon as it rained, I knew I was like done. So here I am at like the most historic track facility and I'm so excited. Like the whole, like it's, you know, I'm flying from Penn State. So it's this huge flight, big process. The day of the meet comes and now it starts to rain. And before I even step in, I, I, I'm defeated. I've, I've just mentally checked out. First throw, I like fell. Second throw, I put into the net. So third throw, there was only nine people competing. It was like a smaller meet. So everyone made finals. So all I had to do was get a mark to make the finals. So my coach was like, literally just turn and throw it. Even if it's like an average throw, you're, you're probably over 170, 180, 200s feet. Is there just to ask from a, again, from a very complete novice's standpoint, is there a minimum throw requirement? Like if you had just, if you had just literally tossed it like an inch, yes, like dropped it, reached over and dropped it. You'd have to make it. I I think you'd probably have to make it off of the, the, the throwing surface, which is probably like five feet. But it's not very hard. Yeah. yeah. But no, there is no minimum. And all you have to do is have a mark to make the finals, and you get three more throws. So basically, it was like, listen, 
just get a mark and then you can regroup, get your head out of this and then get back in the finals and get back to how you were. So I was like, all right, fine. So I have this throw and I think it was probably like 70 feet, 80 feet where I'm normally throwing in the one, like at least over 160, 170. So it was like awful, right? Get, get that mark, make finals or whatever, get three more throws, all three throws and finals I put into the net. Don't foul, don't get a mark. <laughs> So now I've traveled all the way to Hayward Field. It's like a two days worth of travel to the greatest facility in America and have the worst throw of my entire career on record at being like 65 feet, which is like, like he could throw that in shot. He normally over throws that way over in shot. Like that's how bad this throw was. So now I'm just demoralized. Like, it's the fir- it's the first event, the first day of a three day meet. So now I'm just no one else has really competed yet. It's just me already done, having the worst day of my life. And we get back on the bus. We're sitting on the bus, and I'm just like head head in my lap. Just don't want to talk to anyone, doing anything. So now my mother calls, and they kept being like, "How'd you do? How'd you do?" And I was like, "Bad, terrible. Don't want to talk about. It, don't talk about it." So finally, I'm just like, "Oh, stop fucking bothering me. Whatever." I answer the phone, and then she's like, "Oh, don't worry about it." And I was like, "Are you kidding? How do you not worry about it? I just traveled all this way and just embarrassed myself." And she goes, "Let me tell you something. You may not be the best thrower, but you're definitely the smartest thrower. And don't you forget it." <laughs> and at that point, I just hung up the phone. <laughs> Like I couldn't even I couldn't even answer it. I just hung it up and I turned to, to my friend who was also a thrower and told them what she had just said. And everyone on the fucking bus just started cracking up laughing. <laughs> and here I am the worst meet of my life and everyone's just laughing at me. <laughs> now, here's a real follow up question to that. Were you definitely the smartest thriller? At that meet, I probably was. Overall, okay. overall, I'm probably not the smartest thrower ever, uh, for sure not. Actually, I know a couple of, of Olympians who are who are really, really intelligent. So, uh, throwers on the whole actually are a pretty smart group of people. Uh, surprisingly, I don't. Maybe they just have a lot of alone time, so they read a lot of books. But <laughs> yeah, I guess that is surprising. You wouldn't play into the stereotype of just big people throwing things, but yeah, it's uh, so. Well, I know, although I, I guess very intricate technical yeah. aspects to the sport right i mean so I, I know nick wasn't happy with his performance at hayward field but I'm, at least i'm sure he didn't have his mother calling him saying you may not be the best thrower but at least you're the most entertaining thrower <laughs> would you have rather thrown into the net three times in the qualifiers and just fouled out yes for sure yeah. because now like because it always will be in the back of my head it was like the worst throw ever and it's a recorded throw so that's the worst throw of my career recorded. <laughs> now, does that bother you because it's the worst recorded throw and it's just on record there? Or is there the element in your mind of you didn't even try, so you could have, like, yeah. it probably would have gone badly, but you might have actually had a halfway decent throw had you actually attempted to have, a like, a, a good throw? Probably a little bit of both. Although, I mean, I had five, five attempts at it and I still didn't get a good throw. So the chances that that one would have been a decent one is, is pretty far-fetched, I think. Well, speaking of people who won't be recording any personal bests or records, it's worth mentioning the news of the day, which is Novak Djokovic, who will not be playing in the U.S. Open after the decision came in that 
you will not be allowed to attend as he is unvaccinated. So that's, uh, I guess, a disappointment for the event as a whole that he's unable to travel to New York. But not a surprise. He knew that it was a risk when he, you know, kind of has doubled, tripled, quadrupled down on not being vaccinated. But to have the defending Wimbledon champion and, you know, probably the most informed tennis player around at the moment, not there is a, is a disappointment for the sport. Yeah. It, I don't know. It's kind of strange. I mean, considering all of the changes the CDC just made to their regulations about COVID that they still are holding to this as you know, banning him from competing is it's yes. kind of crazy. It's interesting because, yeah, you're right. The CDC are obviously, and we're by no means a health podcast or someone who's been looking in detail into the various COVID restrictions and regulations, but the CDC is obviously relaxing elements of their COVID protocols and, and regulations, but based on this, travel restrictions are not one of them. So, yeah. you know, that's, um, hmm. I guess the, the interesting twist is, though, as with anything, and it ties into a little bit, I guess, the... the the conversation that we have later on with Nick Ponzio, but there is opportunity there for others. And in particular, Rafael Nadal, who is trying to get his 23rd Grand Slam title, which will then, um, you know, you know, in this sort of neck and neck race that he is having with Djokovic, that seems like a decent opportunity for him. And then you also have Medvedev who comes back as the defending champion, who obviously missed Wimbledon because of the, the being Russian and not allowing, not being allowed to take place there. And just also the possibility that maybe one of the other young players will be able to step up and start to start to kind of take the mantle as one of the future hopes of, of men's tennis. Yeah, this definitely opens it up, which may make for a more exciting US Open, I guess. But we'll we'll see. Now, I know you love nothing more, Frank, than the Live Golf Tour discussions. And this time around, I guess no real news about Live itself. Although, Why are we still talking about it? Just they have stop. Been, they, they have been. I mean, they continue to. The, this is a major update on the PGA side of things, which is undoubtedly a response to um, the Live Golf Tour. I guess the only thing worth saying, Live Golf Tour is just in full troll mode. Troll mode at this point. I don't know if you saw, They released a statement yesterday, which says said, Live Golf is clearly the best thing that's ever happened to help the careers of professional golfers. That was their statement. (laughs) So they're just in full troll mode at this point. Obviously yesterday the PGA made an announcement having following on the heels of this meeting where they had all the world's best golfers attend Tiger Woods kind of flew in to sort of take the lead, but they made these announcements, these kind of reforms to the, the way in which PGA would be run they include, amongst other things, there's a guaranteed money for participants who compete in a minimum number of events. Uh, it was just five hundred thousand dollars. Now they will also front sort of they will they will give that to you at the start of the year, and they also front some other travel related expenses and things to try and ease the the pain on sort of lower level golfers in terms of not you know kind of from a cash flow perspective, I guess, making things a little bit easier. They've increased the the prize money and the number of events, still not on the par with what the Live Golf Tour opens uh, offers, but still um, kind of a pretty significant increase on that front. And then also uh, they announced this new 
venture that we'll be launching in 2024, this uh, Monday night golf event, uh, virtual golf event, being led by Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy, which is kind of like Top Golf on steroids, I guess. It's going to be in ar- arenas and with I think twenty players taking part in a in a one night kind of team based competition where they are in golf simulators on virtual courses. Um, it sounds gimmicky. It sounds kind of stupid to me. It also sounds sort of fun. Like it will. I yeah. think ultimately I'll judge it based on what it, the end product ends up looking like, but. The real question that comes out of this, I guess, is, you know, Phil Mickelson was accusing the PGA Tour of having more money than they were letting on and the ability to pay players more. And that was part of his argument for why he said, you know, why he went to the Live Golf Tour in the first place. And I guess this means Phil Mickelson was right because all of a sudden the Live Golf Tour is a real threat and what do you know? They find a bunch more money and put in place a lot of the things that I guess some golfers would have wanted previously yeah i mean that that part i i kind of definitely agree with you with and then for as for the are they they're calling it a, the virtual event or whatever it is it to me it it's kind of going to be like the match where the first time you heard about the match which is you know when originally i think it was what tiger woods and someone playing mickelson and someone and then they started putting in like quarterbacks like Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady. And the first few of those were fun and they were cool and you heard about them and, oh, that's that's exciting. I'll watch that for a little bit. And now that they have the match seven or whatever the hell they're on now, it's kind of losing the allure. And I feel like this is what that will be, where the first time, like just you telling me that it's top golf on steroids of them and simulators playing against each other sounds really cool. Like, oh, I would definitely watch that. But would I watch it Monday after Monday after Monday? No. I'd probably watch the first one and then occasionally check in now and then. But I think it would lose it would lose the allure pretty quickly. Probably, yeah. The novelty factor is probably going to be a big part of it. And it will be interesting to see from that perspective. And, and maybe it's the kind of thing that if it were in the town I, or city I was in, I might want to go to the event itself. Like if there's a good stuff surrounding it and it looks like a lot of fun, then maybe I would do. I guess the thing which they're not really discussing at this point, but where they probably have a winning formula, and I hate um, as much as I like um, you know elements of betting that surround sports. I hate sports being framed through betting. It does seem like an event that is pretty ta- much tailor made for a a betting experience and perspective, which is tailor made. No pun intended. No pun intended there. Which, again, is not something that they're speaking about now, but I bet you that will creep into it as they're doing. But that ability to really bet, you know, with the fact that it's a virtual course, like to be doing shot by shot, shot betting and kind of every element that's going to be able to really be measured, you know, precisely in a controlled environment. I'm sure that's something that they'll probably try and exploit. But yeah, it's a little gimmicky. We'll see. I'll definitely tune in for the first couple of instances and see what it's like. But it, it also, you know, it's, it's not too dissimilar. And they do the, like the Hero Golf Tour where they do some gimmicky long drive championships and also sort of par threes where they're kind of trying to hit onto a really small green. Yeah. And either they've done it in like downtown cities where they put the, the green like on the road and they have to hit it. It's well, probably you know, a fun thing, fun thing to go to. I don't know if you're watching it on TV. Yeah. And I, the European Golf Tour does a lot of those cool videos and gimmicks where they'll have... 
a few players come out and they have like a par three and they have to use every club in the bag and see how many times they can get on the green and things like that. So those things are cool and they make for good YouTube videos, but would they work on like a full-time yearly live. basis? I don't know. Live. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. The DB world tour, European tour, their YouTube channel is really good. They do they a lot of cool up. stuff. Like they'll do like the like fastest to complete a hole and they'll have, you know, yeah. like they hit and then they sprint to the ball and then hit it again. That's pretty cool. Some of those things that they do. Well, speaking of trolling, Eddie, the, uh, here in Arizona, a lot of the Cardinals fans, there's been a, a heavy amount of trolling on head coach Cliff Kingsbury. I don't know if you've seen uh, his his moves have slightly backfired on him. So I don't know if we actually mentioned this, but a few weeks ago, after the whole Kyler Murray uh, having hours to study film outside or whatever with the whole contract, after that died down, uh, one of the main highlights or headlines here was that Kingsbury had asked Kyler Murray to call plays and practice. And apparently it hadn't went well. And then in the interview, Kingsbury was, you know, kind of jokingly, but said, you know, he's, he's not a good play. He's not a good of a play caller as, as he is a player. And let's hope he isn't calling plays anytime soon, but now he realizes how difficult it is and that it's not easy and blah, blah, blah. So fast forward two more weeks Kingsbury actually let Kyler Murray call plays in the last preseason game they had. And when Kingsbury was calling the plays, I think it was about four or five drives that they had, and they had gotten three points. And then Kyler Murray called the plays for two drives, and they scored two touchdowns in those two drives. So there was quite the trolling as to one, who should be calling the plays in the regular season, and two, didn't that move really end up backfiring on you? <laughs> yeah, I also saw, I don't know if how much you noticed this, but they were, they also showed pictures of Kyler Murray in the headset that he was using to pl- call plays and the headset he uses to play video games at home. And it appears that he had brought his gaming headset to... <laughs> And I get, I don't know if this is like subtle trolling or like a small jab at like not focusing or paying attention, you know, you never know, or it was just, he likes that headset and it's a high quality headset and that's the one he wanted to use. And he felt like it's better than the ones that are provided for, you know, NFL coaches and players who knows, but that, that was, did not go unnoticed with people putting the side by side of pictures of him at home. It is definitely exactly the same headset oh that is great yeah so maybe uh maybe murray's gonna pull the willie beeman and just start calling plays on his own (laughs) yeah maybe yeah or the what remember the titans sunshine he let he he tells him to let him through right maybe he'll start doing yeah he'll start doing that he'll just and just flipping d lineman (laughs) yeah what a classic move god you see that all the time on a high school football field throw a 40 (laughs) yard touchdown pass and then in the process duck down and flip over at the end on on his back (laughs) (laughs) well i mean look we have the conversation later with with nick ponzio where he mentions that he not ruling out the possibility of him becoming a, a an nfl lineman in the future could you imagine rolling that across your back after calling let him through 
<laughs> and again, not a knock on him, but that, I mean, it's it would be quite an impressive if I saw Kyler Murray roll a three hundred pound man across his back uh, and make a play. I'd be extremely impressed. I take back everything I'd ever said about Kyler Murray. Yeah, and I guess with that, why don't we uh, take it to the interview? Let's do it. Welcome back to the Big Chills Podcast. We're now delighted to be joined by our guest this week, Nick Ponzio, who is a, a well a professional thrower, shot putter, international representation for, for Italy. Uh, Nick, thank you so much. I think probably introducing you that way and they're about to hear you speak might confuse a few people. So that might be the, <laughs> that might be where he had to start. But thank yeah, you so no, much I, for, for joining us. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, I think that my uh, my name has become a bit synonymous with uh, being a little bit of an entertainer and, a, and an extravagant sort of personality. So I think my character and and all that stuff, my you know my showmanship, kind of precedes itself. So I, I I really appreciate you guys having me on and everything like that, and I look forward to talking shop and all that. Yeah, no, it's great. It's it, I'm looking forward to it as well. I guess yeah, if we start off, you know, people will probably you know if they've been watching international throwing competitions, the World Athletics Championships that recently took place, the European Championships, they will have seen you there representing Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that, I mean, sort of, again, people will listen to you and kind of think this is an American guy, obviously with a very yeah. Italian name, but yeah, how, did yeah. it come ab- how did it come about that you ended up representing Italy and sort of what was that process like? And, and sort of in a sense, when did you make the decision that you wanted to represent Italy and say, not the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, you know, my whole life, I essentially, you know, grew up uh, with an entire really, really strong Italian culture, um, just be, from both sides of my family being Italian. My mom's side comes from Naples and my dad's side comes from Sicily. Um, so I have been thinking about representing Italy on an international stage through athletics since uh, 2016, since the Olymp- uh, Olympic trials. Um, and Back then, I was still in college at USC, and it was kind of more of a pipe dream than anything else. It was more of like a, hey, I'm just a kind of chubby paisan here. I love to eat cured meats and mozzarella di bufala, and, and I love everything about the Italian culture, but I just need to figure out how to kind of get that that Italian flag next to my name on World Athletics. And through a long sort of tedious process, I had to kind of sit out a lot of like, you know, U.S. championships and other things that I could have done um, because I wanted to chase that dream after a while as I got, kind of got better and better. Um, and as I left college and became professional, um, I started to throw farther distances, distances that were world standards and everything else. And um, I tried to do it on my own, but it was kind of a long and tedious process, especially since um, I was not internationally renowned by by any means at that point, um, especially like, you know, I, I would say I am now. So it took me all the way till about 2020. Um, finishing top five in the world and uh, winning the Rome Diamond League on Italian um, uh, soil to be able to finally get the Italian Federation to uh, contact me. Um, but from the beginning all the way till now, it's always been something that's been a huge part of my life. Like you said, you know, Nicholas Ponzio or Nicola Ponzio, whatever, whatever it's supposed to be in, in Italy um, is, is an incredibly Italian name. And um, I have really thick Italian culture and thick Italian blood and a thick Italian body. So, I mean, if we're going to kind of put all the cards on the table here, um, that, that those are all things <laughs> synonymous with me. But um, but yeah, so really, it's just kind of been a long process. But more than anything, it's been a really, really um a rewarding one at that as well, being able to kind of do this for my family and, and for the country that I love. Cause I love Italy um, just as much as I love being an American. I've been telling people I've been an Italian American my whole life. So it's really been kind of a, a big part of who I am. So it's, it's, it's been really, really great. So 
so what's what's that process like though? I mean, is it do they have any specific qualifications or requirements? You know, like do you have to speak Italian? Do you have to pass like a knowledge test? You know, is, is it close to getting <laughs> citizenship to represent them, or is it just you know you you check a few boxes and it's and it's fine? Well, so for me, uh, specifically for me, it was different. And I think that there have been a few athletes in the past that have had this. Um, when you do it through athletics and the federation wants you to compete for the country, it, the, the citizenship path is a lot different than, say, a normal person would, would get. So for me, it really just it, it came down to me having the proper paperwork and being able to file it with the uh, consulate in L.A. Because, as you could probably tell, I'm, I'm from uh, – uh, the United States and, and having that sort of accent and everything like that, it, it, it's definitely makes people wonder, but doing all that paperwork and having my, my passport um, through the consulate in LA was uh, uh, awarded me um, kind of front of the line sort of uh, status. So what, instead of me having to wait a certain amount of years or having to do any sort of testing or anything like that, um, it kind of pushed me to the front of the line because of the fact that I was uh, being pushed by the Federation out in Italy to to be able to do this for the Olympics because it was mainly for the Olympics. Um, so all of that was kind of uh, expedited um, when it comes to the process itself. So I'm not really sure what a normal person would have to do. I know that for me it was similar, um, but when in that long-term process that most people have to deal with, um, I, I, I'm not really all too sure. That's usually what, what most athletes have to do, especially if the country themselves want to uh, get you on the team. So, so how good is your Italian then? <laughs> I would say my Italian is lackluster at best. Um, I, so it's my grandparents on both sides and, and, you know, when they came over, they spoke Italian, um, fluently and all that stuff. But a lot of people need to realize that when, um, certain people came to the United States from another country, especially Italy and stuff, they wanted to come here and assimilate um, at the turn of the century right away. So it became more of like a, Hey, you know, we speak fluently, but we speak, we speak Italian fluently back in Italia, back in, in, in our home country. But when we come here, we're trying to get jobs and we're trying to be able to support our families and everything like that. So we have to assimilate to the culture. And, and by doing that, we have to speak English. And so when it came to my parents, both of them know very little to none because that just wasn't a big part of their household. And then for me, you know, I didn't really know much at all. Um, and so it kind of came, I kind of came into my own with it in the sense of my, um, my travels to Italy for, for throwing and, and sort of like popular culture or, or popular entertainment and, and, and media in the United States. Um, you kind of get into your own sort of rhythm. And then as I've been an Italian athlete, I've been doing a lot more kind of like Rosetta Stone kind of stuff um, on the side to be able to get it. But more than anything, my, the, the biggest thing that's helped is being able to stay in, in Italy for training camps and stuff and talk with the people there. That's, that's really helped. But to come full circle with what I'm trying to say back, back to what you're, you're asking me, uh, my Italian still when I started and still to this day is uh, a little bit lackluster at best as, as much as I hate to say. It. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, and I was just, just going to ask actually, so do you, so you do go to training camps and things like that in, in Italy and before big world events yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. I'm full. I, I'm, yeah, I'm fully supported by the Federation, which I'm super um, That's awesome. thankful for. The Federation in, in Italy is called uh, FIDAL, so it's um, F-I-D-A-L, and it's uh, and they've been so 
so supportive of me coming onto the team, especially as being an American. Um, you know, I lived 27 years in an English speaking country and then coming over to an Italian speaking culture or about Italian speaking country fully, um, has been, um, it's, it's a difficult process because communications and things are, are difficult, but, um, they have been incredibly supportive of me, allowing me to have training camps like you had just mentioned and, and allowing me to be able to, uh, be funded in a way that, uh, to, to chase my dreams and, and everything like that. So, um, yeah, I, I do a lot of training in Italy and stuff. And I try to make that kind of like my second home, especially because I do long, long treks here in Europe. Um, cause I, I, Anybody that knows Nick Ponzio also knows that he travels more than anybody in the world when it comes to uh, shot putting um, and competing. Um, like at the end of this year, I will have done 34 outdoor meets, which is like more than probably wow. double the next best guy. So uh, I do I do a ton. This is my definitely my full-time job. So I do a lot of home base in Italy um, and training and stuff in Italy. So it, it's been really good for them to be able to support me that way as well. So, so where is actually real quick? I just want to where is the training, like the national training center for for track in Italy? Well, there's there are there are a good amount of them, um, and there are a bunch kind of around the country. But where I go is I go to Skio. Um, the top three shot putters, me, Zane Weir, and Leonardo Fabri, um, all train in North Italy like that. So it's all up in Skio, which is kind of I'd say it's about an hour and a half from like Milan uh, per se. Um, so I go up there and I stay, um, in that area just because we all kind of train at the same time together. Um, I find that's probably the most conducive, uh, uh, conditions to have, you know, success, especially on my end, because every time I've done that, um, I've done really well. Um, but I've also gone to Aquachitoza, which is in Rome. Um, and there's a few in Rome and then there's one in Turin, I believe, and a couple other down ways down South, like in Syracuse and Sicily and stuff like that. But, um, national like training centers, most people either go to Rome or some sort of, uh, area right there in about central Italy. But I try to tend to stay in Skio is where I go. So, so, so did you choose Skio cause they have the best food? Is that, was that your top reason? <laughs> yeah. No. Do no, they no, feed no. you the most? <laughs> no, I mean, you know, the thing is, is that there's, it, it's funny in the U S we find this a lot. Um, you know, there's like pockets of different cultures within one country. So everybody kind of thinks that like, you know, when you go to Italy, everybody just eats like, you know, spaghetti and meatballs and pizza. Right. But you go to different parts of, of Italy and it's the same kind of concept that we have in the U S in the sense that there's like different cultures and different types of foods that are really popular. Like you go down South and, um, and there's a lot of tuna based stuff down in Sicily. And then, um, you go to different places and there's more like bracciola and there's, and there's different stuff like, um, um, uh, different types of pasta dishes and all these different things. And so you find different pockets of, of people and different cultures within that own country or within that singular country that eat different things. But in my opinion, Skio no does not have the best around Skio in my opinion has the best cheese, which is, which is quite interesting, okay. but they have okay. some of the best cheese I've had up in that North Italy area. Um, yeah. So actually exactly what you yeah. said, I think Stanley Tucci is made now what two seasons off of, touring Italy and, and saying all the different <laughs> yeah. pockets have, have very different yeah. types of food and traditions. So, so exactly. Maybe. Yeah. So it's not, you're not going to find the same thing everywhere. And I think yeah. for me, my favorite food has probably been when you get closer to the South. I don't know. It's just something about the food down there. It's just a little bit, I don't know. I, I can't even really like 
put a, a finger on it as to what I find the best about it. But it's like better, a little bit better breads and stuff. It's, it's really, really good down there. The closer you get up to North Italy, there's a little bit more of like a German, uh, Swiss sort of influence because you get so close to like the Alps. Um, but down south, it, it becomes a little bit more like true southern Italian food. And, and that's kind of kind of my, my style. That's definitely my bag, you know. Yeah, I know I can. I mean, Germany and I'm not a huge fan of German and German and Austrian Swiss food. So I can definitely mm-hmm. relate to you on that. Real yeah. hard hitting question for you here. Who speaks better mm-hmm. Italian, you or Zane Weir? <laughs> to be honest with you, probably Zane, because he lives full time with Paolo Del Solio, who is who I consider to be the national throws coach of, of Italy. Um, he is definitely, I mean, he's got two guys at 2199. Um, so he is, he is by far uh, in a way, um, the best coach in my opinion, throwing wise in Italy. And in my opinion, also one of the best shot putting coaches in the world. That's another reason why I go to uh, Skio is because I just, I love to kind of learn, um, from Paolo. I am personally self-coached and, um, self-programmed. So like for all my weightlifting and, and everything else, nutrition and everything outside of it. Um, so I kind of, I, I've, I've taken on this path alone at, at, at this point for this year and, and, and a little bit beyond. Um, but if I can go back and kind of learn and have him looking, have some, have him be some eyes, it's always really, really good. So I would say probably him just because he lives with Paolo full time and he trains with Paolo full time out there in Skio. I, I mean that to me, what you said is pretty interesting that you're completely self-coached. Um, and, and still being so, you know, you're still relatively, I think in throwing terms, very young. How has that, how how has that gone? And, and do you foresee that to continue or do you think after, you know, doing this year and kind of seeing how it went that maybe you want to go back to at least getting some partial coaching or, or, or at least, you know, maybe getting some of your workouts and things like that. Yeah. I, you know, when I first, when I first took on this endeavor, I was kind of doing it more of like, Hey, I'll do my own weightlifting and I'll do my own programming for a lot of stuff. Cause I've just been, I mean, I've been in a weight room since I was, since I was like 13 years old. So I've been in a weight room for like almost 15 years. And, uh, I knew, I kind of know what I'm doing at this point, especially when it comes to periodization and all that. But, um, I was looking for right when I left the previous group that I was with, I was looking for somebody just to kind of be eyes for me like somebody who could just like look and see what they were doing. And I've been fortunate enough that every once in a while um, where I train in Nashville, I, uh, there's a, na- a man by the name of Joe Fry, who's the coach at um, Belmont university, which I'm also a volunteer assistant at. Um, he's been really good with, with helping me out and learning from me as well to be able to see what I'm trying to do. So he has been a set of eyes, not so much a coach. Like he hasn't really been out there being like, Hey, you know, you got to do this. It's more like, Hey, I see this. Um, but for me, I have also found there's there's something there's something really really special about being able to be in tune with the way that your body feels rather than having a coach um, that's just going to tell you what you're doing wrong or what you need to do all the time. And for me, I also have found um, the fact that I get to travel now with my coach everywhere around the world because he's basically attached to my hip. Literally, um, it's been really really nice. Um, so I find that moving forward, I want to make this my my main thing where I am in tune with what I'm doing and I want to have control of it. Now, whether or not I, I have a coach or somebody who helps me out come in and, and, and be a part-time thing like that is to be seen. But at this moment for the foreseeable future, um, this is what I want to do and I want to be able to have that control um, because I think knowing where I'm at, 
physically knowing where I'm at mentally and having all of that kind of be wrapped up in this special package that I can bring out to the ring or bring out to wherever I'm going um, is something that's invaluable. And so I have found, I mean, I threw the indoor national record for Italy indoors. I was an indoor world finalist um, through an outdoor PB, outdoor world finalist, European finalist and everything like that and almost came away with medal. Um, it's been a, it's been a solid season. Um, it's been a season that I think has been just a bit off. Like it's just, I'm just kind of missing it every time I go somewhere. Um, but ultimately what I've done, um, is something that is, is also very rare. And I think, um, with it being kind of a special thing, it's something that I kind of hold dear. So I I don't know if I want to let go of it yet, just yet. And how then, I mean, I've seen some interviews with you where you've, you've kind of spoken about the fact that it's the, it's the major championships where you're really focusing your attentions on and you're not reading necessarily too much into your performance at some of the the sort of smaller events. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're, you've already mentioned, I think you said 34 this year. You're competing so so much. Then how are you, is it, is it in terms of determining whether or not the season was a success, is it then purely based on how you did at the major events or do you kind of look at your performance over the course of the full 12 months and try and see sort of how consistent you were or what your PBs or your season bests were? Yeah, I, I think for me, um, it's a little bit of a culmination of different things. I, I, I find for me, of course, being able to go to major championships and compete really well is what you want more than anything. I mean, you want to come away with hardware. That is that is ultimately the name of the game. When it comes to the amount of money you're going to make, when it comes to the amount of um, meets you're going to get into and everything else, uh, the opportunities, it's all based on if you have a, a medal or hardware or not. Um, but for me, when it comes to the success of the season, now granted, this is not going to be something that I'm going to be doing long term, like 34 meets a year. Like I'll be out of the sport by next year if that's the case, because it's been a, it's been a tough road. But um, the majority of the meets, I, I I go into them lighthearted a little bit more, and I try to have a fun time, which I'm sure everybody sees, and I and I want to enjoy myself as much as I can because there's such a stigma behind this that everywhere you go, you've got to have stern, like I'm here to make money. It's my job and all this stuff, which a part of that is true, but also a part of it is like, Hey, you're not going to make any of that money that you want to make. If you don't go into these meets being like, Hey, I'm a professional athlete. They're paying for me to stay in five star hotels and they're paying for all my meals. And I don't have to worry about a lot outside of this other than, you know, money going straight into my bank account. So it's like you've got to kind of have like that double-edged sword to it where it's like I'm trying to make good money, but I also want to have myself be a personality and I want to have myself – I want people to notice that I'm having fun. And it's it's kind of the way that I myself have grown my own brand, like the Chubby Diamonds brand and, and Nikki Tuchins and everything else. It's kind of how I've grown into that brand. Um but the success also comes from like the, the, the swings, like in the sense of like, you know, where were you down? Were you down around major championships? Or were you down in like the thick of the, of the regular season? Cause I think people forget, you know, because we have singular meets, it's, it's, there's the outlook on it is like, Hey, you have to go to this meet and like throw a PR or be around your PR or it's a, it's, it's not a success. And it's like, Hey man, I'm training right now. Hey man, I just traveled 26 hours to get here. Like I'm, it, this is this is the regular season. It's like most sports. Like in the regular season in baseball, you get guys strike out two hundred times a year. It's like I mean, you know, just it, it's just a part of it, you know. And and it's just you know, you, you you take your licks and you take your hacks at it, and um, you try to be as good as you can when it's important. And that for me, I think is as 
is the key to me having good seasons is trying to have the, the swings be up when I need them to be. And then, you know, whenever it else, whenever else I'm, I'm just kind of in the regular season, I can have it be what it is. Um, so I guess technically to answer your question, yes, I think the success comes from trying to do as well as I can and making that the priority, the, these major championships, but also, you know, like I said, you know, trying to have good, uh, performances and, and, and make some good, uh, a good chunk of change, I should say, um, uh, through the regular season, but have fun doing it. Man, the, 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 the 35 meets just, just blows my mind. Cause if, if, you know, being around throwers for a long time, in my life, if I know one thing is, is big guys don't travel well, and it's, it's not, it's not easy to yeah. be a big guy to travel. So, so to hear that you're traveling yeah. that much and then having to get, you know, off a plane, off a bus, off in a, off a van, wherever the heck, however you're getting there and then tune your body up probably for like what the next day to throw that's, I mean, that's gotta be so, so difficult. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a big, man, it's like, it's hard to kind of explain to a lot of people, especially because of, of how much I do. I think on the outside looking in, everybody looks at what I do and they're like, oh, well, you know, he must be having the time of his life doing it. I can't lie. Just because I have, I try to exude the sort of like, you know, confidence and, and, and character and, and persona or whatever it may be um i still struggle with a lot like i struggle physically a lot like it's a lot of tonnage um all the weights you lift all i mean i've been literally training since man since like october of last year i mean like i'm coming up on almost a year of training i've done nine months almost now of competing it's like it's a it's a, a lot of tonnage and like you had mentioned, um, you know, being a big guy, that also really, you know, makes it makes it tough. But there's also the social and, and personal life side of it, too. Like, you know, there's things back home that, you know, I want to be doing or, or people I want to be with at the moment. And, and being away for a long time because you're the traveling businessman makes it very difficult. So the trek itself, the, the 34 meets or 35 meets, however many it'll end up being. Um, at the end of it, um, um, does take its toll. And that's why I just had mentioned, like, I, I'm not going to, I have to be slowing down with this because, you know, there's, there's other things outside of throwing that are just as important. And, um, it's, this, this is going to take, <laughs> this is going to take my career or, or take me into retirement if I keep doing it. Um, so, um, but yeah, it, it's, it's definitely, yeah, it, it, it's a hard road and it's definitely a lot of, um, tough times and, and, and rough moments throughout it. And it's kind of a perseverance thing as well. Um, trying to just be able to be like, Hey, no matter what's happening, like I need to buckle down and do what I need to do, but I can't lie and, and, and say that that isn't, you know, a big part of it as well, which you had mentioned. So, I mean, definitely want to get onto like the brand and the fun parts of your personality that, that do oh, come course. forward and, and the thing that separate you. But I guess before we do that, like a business side of it though, that you kind of alluded to, and obviously not going into too much detail, but like, how do the, how do the economics of throwing work? Like, how do you, you know, I think from an outsider's perspective, there'll be a lot of people listening to this. And I think this is across all sports that kind of turn up at the Olympics where they just don't know, like, how are you making your money day in, day out? You know, like, what does that actually look like for you? Yeah. Um, so track and field as a whole is, is a t it, it's kind of it's a little weird as to how you actually make all of the money that you're making for a year in the sense of it being like you know um from from different avenues um because it's it's not one so you know you think about like for the majority of professional athletes, it's like one sort of channel of how you're making money. It's like, you know, you're, you're getting paid from the league or you're getting paid from sponsors, but that's about it. 
for us, there's a lot of different stuff. Like we have like appearance fees and we have, which is basically like, you know, meets will pay for you to show up or things will pay for you to come to press conferences or, or they'll pay for you to make appearances at kids camps, whatever it may be. Then you have, of course, winnings. Um, you have sponsorship deals on top of that. You have federation money, which is essentially like our our you know governing bodies, um, and you have a few other avenues as to how you make your money. But those are the main ways you do it. So it's kind of like you're you're, you're getting a lot of stuff funneled in from a lot of different channels into you know one place, um, into one sort of LLC per se. Because I like I said, I'm a traveling businessman, so I'm also a walking business. Um, so the brand side of it is I'm trying to like kind of walk around and be like, hey. You know, any money that's coming in, it's coming into the Chubby Diamonds LLC. So it's coming in to, for me, but it's coming into that brand. So the the economics of it are a little bit different than what most people can kind of wrap their brain around. Um, and especially because, like I said, it's different for most sports. Um, but there is the availability as a professional track athlete to make a lot of money and a lot of really good money, especially all, all the time. And that's kind of one of the reasons why I do as many meets as I can, because it then becomes like a just like every other job, it becomes a performance-based gig, but um, it's also like, hey, I, I compete every couple of days, but it's to make money. So it's like I'm making types, different types of money in the sense every three or four days. Okay. And so you have no coach, but then in terms of managing, navigating that whole business side of the sport, do you have an agent or are you negotiating all of those appearance fees and everything else? You're doing that all by yourself? Well, no. So I do have an agent. I have a terrific agent by the name of John Nubani. Um, he is, he's done a, a terrific job by me and he's done really, really well by his athletes. Um, I've been extremely happy with him, like I said. Um, but there are other things that, because, you know, of course, agents take a cut. There's other things that my agent himself will, will push for me to do myself just because it's like, hey, I don't have to take a cut of this if you do it. So there's like, you know, TV shows in Italy and different stuff like that that I will get reached out to um, and I will try to, to manage or, or negotiate myself. And then also anything to do with like a lot of the stuff that's like um, uh, like meats and stuff. So any sort of money that comes in from Italy itself, I do on my own um, through my own club or through my club president or through my federation um, because that's just easier for me to be able to, to navigate myself rather than my agent. My agent basically does everything on a worldwide scale. So like I said, I'm, I'm in Lausanne, Switzerland right now, and I'll be going to different places like Brussels and Zurich and, and Zagreb and Bellazona and, and different places all around Europe. And uh, – those will all be kind of negotiated by him. But when it comes to anything Italian based or anything that I can do that, that is basically a representation of my brand, I will definitely negotiate on my own. And that way I can kind of get all of it without having any cut taken because of course an agent has to live too, and he's got to get his money and, and for them to live and put food on their table, they have to be able to take a cut of their, of, of what they do. So you're saying you've done some TV show appearances in Italy. Are you, are you doing like TV, like Italian soap operas? Are you doing cameos and things? <laughs> <laughs> No, so so I actually have a couple coming up um, that are actually like uh, like not soap operas, but they're more like kind of news channel things. Like there's one that's coming up that I, I can't say too much just because I don't really know exactly what we're doing, but it's kind of like you know games based, or they want to do it like because I'm I'm a I'm a personality and. Um, it's become nice because I think a lot of these TV shows and a lot of these this media in Italy want me to come onto their shows because of the fact that like I'm becoming more of a popular figure in Italy. Like I just traveled on train from Italy to here, and I took like I, I kid you not like six different pictures. I like took like autographs, or I mean I uh, gave autographs on the train. Like it was 
I'm becoming more of like a, a, a person that people are recognizing, especially in Italy. So I think these people who are a part of these TV shows are taking notice and want me on them. Like I just got uh, offered to be on, on a radio show and different stuff, which in and of itself is amazing and all. And, I, and I'm really, really grateful for it. But it also becomes kind of a stressful time too, because sometimes you go on to these and I'm like, okay, I'll go on there. But like, I don't really speak much Italian. Like, is that okay? Like I'm, I'm full Italian and I, all my blood's Italian, but like, I just don't have the language behind it. Is that okay? And some of them are like, well, we need you to try to try or, or speak a little bit. And I'm like, okay. So it kind of becomes a, a stressful time because you, you try to do as much as you can. But um, more than anything, like I said, I'm really grateful for it. It's just kind of one of those things where you have to kind of <laughs> try to work and navigate the best you can. When you're traveling then, what is your, I mean, train is probably a pretty comfortable way, I guess, for you to get around. Mm-hmm. And again, this kind of goes back to just the big man question. What is it like on a normal, in like a normal travel situation, like on, on a plane, how are you getting enough space? <laughs> like it's a just, uh, yeah. you, know, what does that look? you must you know, be a nightmare for whoever has to sit next to you. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, planes have become a really, really difficult I shouldn't even say they have become, they've just been a hard form of travel for me since I was about 16 years old. It's just, it's just been a really, really difficult thing uh, to do. Um, but more than anything as a professional athlete, the best part about taking trains or any sort of personalized travel like that is that you know where your luggage is and you know it's with you. So I have had my fair share of just disasters and blunders with my luggage. And because we're professional athletes, a lot of times we travel with things that we absolutely need, things we prepare with and, 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 and are a part of our necessities, per se, for, for a meeting. Um, and that's something that you definitely can't – you can't like seem to find anywhere else, especially like in, in Europe. You can't find like a lot of sports stores and you can't find like a lot of places that you can, you can replace that stuff with. So no, most of the time you're trying to go through it um, – with your stuff on you. So like for me, if I have the availability to take a train or a bus or a van or anything, I'm always going to take it just because that is a much greater form of travel in my opinion, because I have everything with me and all that um, than anything else. And it's also a lot cheaper too. So my, my manager can, can take care of that and I can get first class train tickets for a, a fifth of the price that it would, it would cost on, on a plane. So all in all, especially when you're in the city, like, cause you know, Europe is about essentially population size and everything like that around the same as the United States would be. So it's like, if I can just drive or, or go by train or any sort of public, public transit, um, it, it's a much easier thing. So I can do that for the majority when I'm in Europe. Uh, so, but when it comes to size, if we're going to go back to that for a second, yeah, it's no matter what form of travel you do, if you don't have your own seat, if you don't have like a solo seat, you're going to be bumping shoulders. Like, I mean, I've been, I've been on planes and stuff because I mean, like, if I'm going to put all the cards on the table, if I'm going to call a spade a spade, I'm probably taking up two two full plane seats if I'm sitting in the middle. Um, so <laughs> it's really coming down to like you just it, I can't even do anything less than like premium economy or like I said a solo business seat anymore. And it's just it, and unless somebody wants to feel me and my body warmth for the next eleven hours, it's just it's just not not possible. <laughs> do they still let you do that when you book two two tickets next to each other? Like, cause I mean, there's obviously, especially recently, right. There's been all that talk about, you know, overcrowding on planes and overbooking and, and, you know, all this element, do they let you have two seats in your name and just take up both? And do you think they see you and go, okay, that guy definitely needs both. We're not going to try and force someone to sit there. Yeah. I mean, if you want to buy it, you can, but there's by, by no means are they like, 
like if I walk on a plane, they're like, oh, he's big. He should just have two seats. They don't care. I mean, like they'll, they'll make me stick out into an aisle for six hours. They don't, they don't really care. Um, but for me, like there have been a couple times where there have been like some, some mishaps and I've been, you know, given like a middle seat and, I, and I'll just go up to the row of people and be like, listen, this is on a man to man basis here. If you want me to sit in the middle, we're going to all be uncomfortable for the entirety of the duration. <laughs> so if you want, we can do that. But also it'd be a lot easier if you just let me get into the aisle and stick it, stick half my body out and get hit by a cart for eight hours. Um, then, then do that. So it's up to you. And then most of the time people are like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> But you've had no's to that. Oh yeah, oh for sure. Like especially short flights, people are just like, "Nah, man, like just just go ahead and sit on sit in the middle." And I'm like, "Right, <laughs> you just want to piss me off, I guess." <laughs> so I guess let's I guess let's keep on the, the the big man train here. A lot of these meets that you're doing now, you know, when it's not the the championships, things like that, they're they're a lot more relaxed, and it's. I don't want to say like, intimate's not the right word, but you're you're a small group of throwers. I mean, for right now, you're you're competing in the Diamond League, and I think there's only like eight or ten of you throwing, right? So, it it's yeah. it's a small group, and you know you're you're by yourself. So obviously, you guys are gonna hang out and things like that. What's I mean, I I know throwers can drink and eat. You know, what are some of the better <laughs> stories you have of all you guys getting together oh, after a meet and. You, do, do you have like eating competitions or is it just not even a competition? Like, cause what's funny is for me, I know when we used to throw, it's not like it was a set competition, but you'd sit down for dinner and you would just kind of be aware of what everyone else is eating. And you would just yeah. keep eating more and more and yeah. more as like a, like a hidden competition almost. Is that, is that still going on even as a professional? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, when it comes to the drinking side, I don't know if I can divulge on, on everything because there might be some legalities that, that come around <laughs> if, if I talk about all of them. But, um, but yeah, definitely when it comes to like eating and stuff, it's not so much a challenge. It's just a lot of us will go places and be like, Oh, he got two. Let me get three. Oh, he got three. Oh, I'll get four. I could put that down. And then you just kind of like, you get to a point where it's like, you'll kind of look at each other at the dining hall and be like, are you getting more food? And he'd be like, I don't know. Are you getting more food? And you're like, I'm going to get more food. It's just kind of, I don't know. There's just, there's a part of it that's that way. But, uh, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely, I, I can go back to kind of what I was saying the regular season there, are, you'll see the same. I mean, almost at every meet I've seen the same 10 to 12 guys at almost every meet, you know, you go to like every diamond league, every gold level, every world championship, you're going to see about the same guys in the final and, and everything else. So it's kind of nice because you get a, a good sort of, I don't know, like a good relationship with everybody uh, becomes sort of like a, you know, everybody kind of wants to see everybody do as best you can. We're all our own team. So ultimately we want our team to win. We want, I want the chubby diamonds camp to win every single time I step into a ring. Um, but it's, it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, um, like what's the right word? Like, uh, like synergy per se, or like, you know, there's just like, we, we want to, like, we cheer each other on. We want to see everybody do well. Um, so outside of that too, we try to all have a good time with each other. And like I said, we've definitely had some stories that I don't know if I can necessarily talk about, but, um, let's just say they, they were, they were some fun times. That's for sure. <laughs> well, we, I guess we won't push you for the potentially illegal stories to be thrown in, but well, I mean, I'll tell you this, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. We, we were just talking about this recently, um, last year in Zagreb. And I, I could probably talk about this just because I think the, the, the local police and the, and the meat directors there knew what we were doing. Cause I think they're pretty much the ones that escort us back to the hotel. But let's just say there was some, some half naked man running around the city square, uh, jumping into to city fountains, uh, probably 
because of the fact that we had drinking a little too much and uh, uh, causing a ruckus at about two in the morning. So I'll talk about that because that just recently happened last year. So um, I'll I'll give you guys that little bit just just, uh, as an appetizer. Yeah, a little teaser. I I I think the other fun thing too is is being a thrower, especially, you know, I wasn't the biggest guy, but obviously, you know, being around a a bunch of the, the bigger throwers, whenever you walked into a place, I feel like, like waiters and things, their eyes would light up because they'd be like, oh my God, these guys are coming to eat. And it, it just gets people so excited when they see a group of like five or six throwers come in. They're just like, yeah. oh my God, we're, we're going to feed these guys to they're dead. You know, so it, it, it always just makes for more of a fun night, I, I feel like, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I I think that's kind of a mixed bag everywhere you go. Like some places you'll have people that are like, like oh, let's get these guys fed and it's going to be a good time. And some places I've gone to here in in Europe, they're just like sometimes you go into smaller places and they're not happy that you're walking in with six guys because they're like, hey, there's one guy back there making sandwiches or one guy back there making kebabs. <laughs> he not want to feed, you know, a metric ton of of, of man <laughs> enough food to, to be able to to satisfy themselves. So um, yeah, it's definitely a mixed bag. But it all in all, I would say like even outside of the rowdy times, those are some of the best times just being able to kind of hang out with those guys who you, you know, you, you'll see probably for the rest of your career and you'll call friends for a long, long time. And like I said, you just kind of uh, have that sort of relationship with everybody. And so that's the, that's the fun, like off the track. But one of the things that I guess makes you a little bit distinct and unique is the fact that you are actively trying to bring the fun into the events themselves and kind of show off your personality Mm -hmm. and have a presence that probably is lacking for the most part from track and field, which, you know, I think certainly for the, especially for people who aren't following it really, you know, sort of religiously and consistently, and you're just showing, maybe watching the major championships, there is, it's difficult to kind of differentiate between one competitor and the other. And everyone just seems to be there to get the business done and do their best. For sure. What is it like, what are you, what are you trying to bring to the track then? And what do you feel like maybe it's, is almost lacking in sort of international track and field and athletics that you think could make it either more appealing to more people or just a more fun event overall for everyone. Yeah. Uh, for me, I've always told anybody, anybody who's asked me this kind of question, I always tell everybody first and foremost, this is just basically who I am. Like, I know it's my brand, but more than anything, like I've my whole life, I've I've wanted to be the funny guy, and I've wanted to be kind of you know the person that that made everybody laugh and smile and and all that stuff. So I've I have considered myself an entertainer for a long, long time, and so I try to bring that to anything I do. But it's been nice being at the highest level in track and field and doing this at like a world championship final or doing it at a diamond league final or do anything like that. It's been really, really nice. My biggest goal with it, though, not only just to like entertain is to allow my performances also to back that, 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 that sort of characteristic up, um, or, or persona, I should say. Um, so for me, like right now, I, I just feel like I haven't thrown as far as I'd like, but I'm sort of, I want to keep the, the good times rolling, uh, per se. Um, so that when I know, because I, I, you know, feel like I'm the hardest worker in the room as well, but, um, I, I want to also feel like once those, those distances and performances start to come up to where my, you know, my flamboyant personality is that it'll all kind of make sense. Um, but it has been nice to be able to be recognized on a global scale by, you know, world athletics as a whole, like our governing body, but also like some of the biggest names in the sport, you know, Mondo Duplantis and, and Noah Lyles and, and Grant Holloway, like all those guys like recently been like, Hey man, we're big fans of what you do. Like, Rather than being the guy that walks up with the hood on and doesn't want to talk to anybody, you're the one that's like, 
you know, giving the finger guns and the winks at the camera and you're like trying to blow kisses at the crowd. And, you know, the way that you are on Instagram, it's been, it's, it's a really good time because at, at that point it, it brings a lot more attention to the, to the sport. And I think not only me, everybody as a whole, when it comes to the track and field community, um, we are all trying to be able to make this a more lucrative thing. And the only way to do that is to make it more entertaining and have more people come watch. So I think I'm trying to do my own part to do that. Um, but you know, to come full circle with it, I'm definitely just doing who I or being who I am and, and doing me. So, um, I've been happy to be able to do that and have people really take notice and enjoy what I'm doing. Yeah. And, and how, I guess, how difficult is that too? Because I mean, you said before, Throwing is basically at at the professional level. You're a team of one, right? And if mm-hmm. if you're not throwing well, I I know personally it it gets to you mentally really quickly. And how how is it to to have three bad throws and then to have to turn around and shoot water guns, you know, to the to, to the camera <laughs> yeah. and things like that? You know, like how how difficult is yeah. that to kind of pick yourself up when you're having just a crap day? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, they definitely happen to all of us. I mean, still some of the best guys in the sport have had days where it's just like, Whoa, what's going on here? And that's, that's not even so much a, a, a knock on us or, or a knock on, on who we are. It's just more, that's just the way the human body is. I mean, the human body has its ebb and flows and you're never going to be at a hundred percent all the time. So when it comes to like, when it comes to truly being like a consummate professional, you want to be able to, to be like, Hey, no matter what, um, even if I have a couple bad throws and warmups, like I can still turn it around and still be able to, you know, be the guy that I, I know I can be and win the meets that I know I can win and, and still have some good throws. So even if you warm up bad or you have a couple bad tosses, I'm still going to be who I am because I know deep down I have the repertoire and I have sort of the, uh, the skill set to be able to still be a top 10 thrower in the world, which I am. And and so no matter what that, that mindset of being like, Oh, this is so negative because of the fact that I haven't um, thrown well right now is just, it's, it's a different thing. I guess that also touches on, do you feel a little bit unlucky? I mean, you're, you're arguably competing in the greatest era of throwing ever. Um, and, and is there part of you that just thinks, do you think that, I guess this is a twofold question. It's a topic that, that Frank and, and we, that we've discussed in the past. Like, do you think that sports are just consistently getting better? Therefore, if you had been born, you know, 10 years later, the, the, all of the records are just pushing that little bit higher and the standard is a little bit better. Or do you feel like you're competing in this kind of unique generation of extremely talented throwers? And, and then if that is the case, do you feel slightly unlucky, un, sort of unlucky that, you know, in a different era with exactly the same output, you would have had a, a significantly better chance of, of kind of winning a major championship or, or, or reaching the goals that you, you know, you hope to achieve. Yeah. I mean, you know, ultimately for me, I know if I was in this sport 10, 20 years ago, I'd probably have either a major medal or I'd have a very lucrative contract or anything like that. And I would just definitely be in the mix with, with it all, especially top three. Um, but I, I find that I try not to look at it so much that way. Like, I don't want to look at it as like a, Hey, I I came into the sport at a really, really hard time. So for me, it's just been, um, a negative thing. It's more, I look at it like, Hey, I've come into the sport at a really tough time. So I have to work harder than I've, I probably ever would have. I came into the sport at a different time and it's allowing me to elevate myself into a, a, a different level or, or form uh, of myself as an athlete that I may not have ever achieved. Um, so 
it's really allowed me to kind of, like I said, evolve into where I want to be. And so I'm not really necessarily negative about it as I am sort of uh, in in a positive mindset. That makes sense. And I guess for our listeners who, you know, who may have obviously glanced at shot putting on when the world championship or the Olympics is on, but kind of unfamiliar necessarily, I guess it's, there's parallels between say, if you were a professional tennis player existing, you know, in, in the sort of recent era of having kind of Nadal, Djokovic, Federer all competing at once. And you almost feel like you're sort of feeling uh, like trying to like feed off the scraps of some of the all times greats and trying to match them at a level that's like a real challenge. But I guess that's the kind of a right mindset to take in terms of using it as a, just an opportunity to better yourself rather than a, a disappointment that there's some really talented guys out there at the moment. Yeah. And you don't want to, you don't want to look at it like that. You don't want to be at like a woe is me kind of like, you know, I came in when it was really hard and now I'm not who I, I want to be in the sense of being like having the notoriety that, you know, you could have had 10 years ago, 20 years ago. It's, it's more like, Hey, if you want to do that, You've got to, and, and, you know, this, this kind of goes back to a lot of different sort of, I don't know, intrinsically motivated things, but it's like, Hey, you've got to be dedicated to your craft and you've got to be motivated to be that person because of who you are in here, rather than, you know, just trying to, to, to make that, you know, extra or, um, extrinsic sort of like, I don't know, <laughs> all the stuff that we were talking about, like TV appearances and everything like that. You, you have to be like, I want to do this because I want to be good at it rather than it, like what it can basically give me and what I could have had back then. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. So, so in terms of that, I mean, you had world championships this year were at Hayward field, which must've been pretty awesome. I guess for those who don't know Hayward field, that's university of Oregon, which is track town USA. Um, how was that experience having worlds on home soil and at, you know, one of the most legendary track facilities and, and how do you think overall that meet went? Yeah, I mean, going back to Hayward Field is always something that's close and dear to my heart. Um, I went to Hayward Field, you know, every year when I was in college just for nationals and all that stuff. And um, it's always something that I, I look at as being a really special place and a really special moment in time anytime you get to compete there. Uh, but for the World Championships to be there was an incredibly special thing to be announced um, a couple of years ago. So I knew that that was, that was something that on my on my list that I really wanted to do well, especially because I know it's got family there and other people. So I went into really trying to make that my priority for the year. And I did really well in qualifying, had a really, really good second throw in qualifying, nice, easy, about 85% effort throw. And through 2135, threw over the auto qualifier, took my shoes off, went back and and tried to regroup. But I think I miscalculated a little bit my pre-meet stuff. Um, before the before the qualifying, I did a pre-meet that really works for me. But the problem is, is I did it again before the final. And we had a we had a qualifying off final. So we kind of had like that day in between. And so I thought, oh, let me do it again before the final. And I think looking back on it now, I need to be able to rest and just kind of do some field work just to kind of like open up my body, kind of like beat it down per se by doing a lift. Um, so the final ended up not going my way and it didn't, it, I did not perform the way at all that I wanted to. I really thought I could have walked there with a medal. Um, even after the, the results came out, I think that that's definitely something I could have done. I know that I'm cut back kind of athlete, that kind of thrower, but, um, I tell people all the time, it's kind of the way the game is played. And, 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 you know, that's, that's what happened to me at Europeans. I thought I could go in there and win that thing. And I, adults, you know, after it ended and the results came out, I, I definitely still think I could have won. And it's one of those, th- those things where, you know, you, you, 
you roll the dice and you go into it being like, hey, listen, we're all going to be duking it out for that top spot. And whoever comes out is, is who came out and who was the better man. And you just, you know, you got to keep going and keep uh, taking those steps one foot in front of the other. And step by step, you'll be where you want to be. Yeah. And, and I mean, so so I'm assuming you take these as just really nice learning experiences, right? I mean, you're still young, like I said, in, in terms of being a shot putter. So being on that stage and kind of learning from that, that, you know, next world championships. Now you kind of know how to treat your body a little better from that qualification to the finals and things like that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the majority of the guys that are good in the sport are two, three, four years ahead of me right now. I mean, most of the guys are nearing 30 and I'm only 27 at the moment. So I am necessarily young, but I've also got the mentality and I have my whole life that I'll be good. Now. I want to be able to be good even when I'm young and I want to be able to showcase all the effort that I'm doing. But more than anything, it's it's really, really um, a, a testament to being like, you know, these are learning experiences and that the next time I come here, if I want to be able to, to do the things I want to do, I've got to learn from them, not kind of be like so hard on myself. So, yes, I definitely look at them as being like stepping stone as to where I'm trying to be and. No matter even if the staircase kind of goes this way or this way, just a little bit up, it's all kind of going upward. So, you know, no matter what, even if, if things go up, down, or stay the same, we're all kind of trying to, or there, I should say that the whole thing is kind of, uh, trending upwards for sure. And I, and I mean, that kind of going back to, I guess, to what Eddie said, I mean, that, that was a great demonstration of how amazing the, shot put is right now you know with with that meet and even like you said to to metal you had to go over over 22 and and some change and then you know to have krauser and and kovacs kind of go back and forth like that was was pretty awesome and it's it's a shame sometimes that being a fan and watching it on tv you only see parts of it because that was a meet where they should have televised that entire thing live You, you know like it's frustrating sometimes because obviously I, I get people can understand running events a little more and you'll see, you know, NBC will have three hours of broadcast and they'll show every qualification heat of the hundred meter dash, but they won't show the finals in, in the totality of the shot put. And that was probably one of the greatest finals in shot put history, if not the best, you know, and it's, it's, it's such a shame that you have people like you in the sport now where, you, you know, you're doing so much to promote the sport that if you could just, have them televise it. I think you could really just jumpstart it and it, it could be like a lot more popular than, than what it is. So, I mean, that kind of must be a little frustrating, right? <laughs> yeah. Which is funny that you just mentioned that it was a lot of people said that they saw my intro to the final more than they actually saw the final itself, which I think is kind of yeah. funny, Yeah, but it is definitely one of those things where the shot put as a whole, um, no matter how you say it, where, whatever country you're in, no matter how you say it, shot put as a whole is, is, is being absolutely desecrated right now by not being showcased as one of the premier events in the world. I mean, we are at this point shot putting. I think one of you guys have mentioned that shot putting is far and away, in my opinion, the best it's ever been. It's the deepest it's ever been. It's, it's the most competitive it's ever been. It's, it's at a point where you are seeing superhumans go into a meet and throw really far and still get beat by like a meter. Like it's just, it, it's, it, you're just getting all walks of life. I mean, you have guys like me, Joe, Chuck Inequichi, um, who's Nigerian, you know, we're a little bit shorter guys, but we, you know, we're in the finals and stuff and we're having to throw different ways than guys like Philip Mahalovich from Croatia or Ryan Krauser, or some of these taller guys. And it's like, you just see all these guys come in here and it's like, all of us are throwing marks that would be like 
at a major championship most of the time contending for a medal. And now it's like, man, if you're not even pushing 23, you're not going to win. And if you want a medal, you got to be in like really far PB shape. So it, it's, it's just that time of the sport. And like I said, I don't look at it negatively. I look at it as more like a, Hey, I've got to come back and I've got to, I've got to be at my best because at my best, I know what I can do. Um, it's just a matter of me being able to, to, to set it up that way. How far do you think you can throw then? Like everything going right on the day. I think like in, in terms of the totality of my career, like, like once I'm, once it's all said and done. Let's start this year. What's, what, what's the goal this year? Let's start there, I guess. Well, I mean, I've, uh, my goal the last, I threw 2172 in 2020. So my goal since last year has been 22 meters. And I've thrown, yeah, I've thrown really close to it and everything like that. But I personally think I could throw anywhere from 2250 to 23 meters in my career. I definitely have the tangibles to be able to do it. It's just a matter of me being able to fine tune. I myself find that I am taking away from the actual effect of throwing that far I, I think that i do things that take a little bit of energy off the ball um so it's about like i said just kind of being able to tweak stuff really kind of tune it in right to be able to get to a point where once i am, am at a point where i can actually put everything that i know that i have into a ball it's going to really go and i think that's what i've been trying to find for at least two years now and this is a long game it's not a short game it's definitely a chess match um so i think over the years it'll definitely show all the training that i've done um um at some point. And then, you know, obviously we're aware of, you know, we don't want to keep you forever. And I guess one of my final questions in a sense, in terms of thinking long-term, you know, we've, we've spoken about you being a big guy. It's, it's kind of a, you know, it's obviously a, a requirement for your professional activity. Will you be post-retirement like an NFL lineman? Like when they, you see them 12, 24 months later and they are just a shadow of their former selves and unrecognizable. Do you think that's what you're going to be like post-throwing? Or do you think this is with your love of food and your personality that this just stays no matter what? Well, I'll tell you what. Um, I have had some people tell me they like me as a big guy. So I, 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 and these are people that are really close to me and, um, my significant other has told me that she, uh, she likes me as a big guy. So I, I definitely want to stay a big guy, not because necessarily because of that, but just because I love being a big guy. Now, am I going to be as big as I am right now? Probably not. I'd like to lose a few LBs. But you had mentioned NFL linemen, and if there's any NFL execs watching out here, I would love to be able to get a little bit of a tryout. That way I can use all this strength and big body size um, to, to good use. Uh, so that might be kind of in the cards maybe over the next couple of years. I've, I've seen what Devin Allen is doing, and it's kind of intrigued me, especially for my love of football and um, my uh, <laughs> my itch to get back to hitting somebody, especially because I do have some of that Italian temperament. But um but yeah, once it's all said and done, um, because I'm, I'm going to go to Paris and, and basically regroup and, and see where I want to go from there. But once it's all said and done, yes, I'm probably going to slim down just a little bit, but by no means am I going to be like a shell of myself. No way. I'm always going to be a big guy. I like lifting heavy weights and I like eating really good food and, and enjoying myself way too much to ever get to a point where I'm going to be in, in a position to be like, well, I hate the fact that I have to, you know, eat a kale salad here and there. It's like, no, no way i'll eat healthier than i do now but i'm gonna go out there and have me a t-bone steak a tomahawk steak all the dinner rolls all of the uh cheddar bay biscuits at, at red lobster all the cheeses <laughs> all all that stuff so i'm gonna definitely be enjoying myself post uh post retirement um uh, when it comes to living my life 
Yeah, if, if you played in the NFL, you could be the first Italian to play in the NFL. You know, I was thinking about that. I was like, man, like even if I'm not the first like Italian American, I would definitely be the first Italian with a passport. I guarantee that. So that would be really, yeah. really cool to be able to do that. So, you know, you get you, you do special stuff in the sport that you do now to kind of push you and propel you into other parts of your life, and maybe that's the next step. Maybe I'm going to be using the uh, the old Olympian card, the well, maybe you know at some point world champion world championship medalist, and and everything else to kind of push me into um, that next phase of my life. So, yeah, I mean, if there's anybody in the NFL watching right now, <laughs> if you want yourself a big, strong, really, uh, really athletic, and really uh, charismatic italian uh here, here i am <laughs> yeah. hey it might be a good opportunity i guess in some respects just from our listeners perspective overall like because i'm sure lots of people will be googling you and looking you up but like just how big are you like right now what's your kind of walking around size <laughs> now? Eddie, eddie you don't just ask someone <laughs> no, no 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 no, no. <laughs> listen, listen, listen. How do, what did i tell you guys right before the podcast i am an open book you could ask me literally anything and i'd probably tell you but it, you know, my my, <laughs> I'm I'm a very big guy. Like they don't call me Chubby Diamonds or Nikki Chuchins for for nothing. Like I'm a big guy. I'm 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 definitely got some some hefty weight on, on these bones. But um, my height is always highly contested because some people think I'm like five six and some people think I'm six two. So it's kind of one of those things where it's really really um questioned i would say around the world so i am so wait let me guess <laughs> let me guess you everyone says you're yeah. five six but you say you're six two <laughs> no 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 no. i definitely know i'm not six two i've been i've been measured 183 centimeters which is like six foot and a quarter inch so i'm like just about six feet if i had to guess i'm probably more like five eleven because i mean let's be honest italians aren't very tall people so i'm probably more on the under six foot side but when anybody yeah ask me of Same course height. it's six feet tall i'm always six feet and a quarter inch because that's been medically measured three times around the world i don't care what anybody has to say ryan krauser <laughs> thinks that i'm not and i am baby i'm 183 centimeters and i'll take that to the grave they can put that on my tombstone well you are speaking in bad frank duca you two have something in common because you <laughs> he is also <laughs> probably just shy of six foot but will never admit it I, I have been measured just like yeah. you. I have been I, medically I, I measured at five yeah. eleven and a half, and I will I will take that to the grave yeah. that I'm five eleven and a half. I have been medically well, see, measured. That's the difference. <laughs> the difference is that I've been I've been medically measured over six feet, baby. So I'm fucking taking that to the grave. If I'm going to be honest. Well, and the, the reality is Frank's five ten with shoes on, but that doesn't that that's doesn't such a lie. It's <laughs> such a lie. So yeah, yeah, but that's that's my that's my weight. But I always tell people, um, I, I I went by five by five for a while, so I went by you know I'm as wide as I am tall. So my weight right now is just about just under 140 kilos. So I'm about 304 at the moment, 304 pounds. Wow. And if there's any international listeners, that's about 139 kilos. Um, so. That's why I definitely look as big as I am because I'm super white and, and a little bit more compact. Um, but, you know, my weight has fluctuated a lot over the years. I've had years where, like, last year I thought I'd have to be a little bit heavier, so I gained a little bit of weight. I When I was younger, I thought I had to be really big. Um, so I got up to about 153 kilos, which is like 337. And I've had those years where, like, I, I just I, I kind of fluctuate. Like, I've, I this past offseason, I went down to about 290, and I felt really good. Like, I've had – I've had a lot of fluctuation, but for the last probably 11 years of my life, on average, I've been about 305, I'd say. So I guess my last question then, um, considering the size, are, are the nicknames, are they 
uh, self-made nicknames or, or did someone <laughs> actually have the, the balls to give you those nicknames? <laughs> no. Yeah. No. So, so some of them, some of them have been given over the years. Like I was given um, somebody, somebody like told me they were like, yeah, you should go by uh prosciutto poppy. And that, you know, that actually was, that was Darrell Hill, which is actually, I got to give him a shout out. Cause that's one of my favorites. Oh, nice. Um, but like you know, Pellegrino Paisan has been my own, and and Nikki Tuchins is my own. Um, Chubby Diamonds is my own. Uh, I got Succulent Sapphire one time. That was pretty funny. Um, Obese Obsidian was pretty funny one time. But yeah, I get like I get all these kind of. I got I get a lot of like, you know, like Italian stuff too. Like you know, like the Capo of Cannolis and all that stuff somebody gave me. But like the Dawn of Ditalini, I gave myself, and and that one's kind of nice because it has like different uh, uh meanings to it so it, it's it's kind of cool because some people who know what that means if you don't know what that means you could look it up in italian slang uh but it, it's pretty funny maybe this will be a new thing for shop putters having all the nicknames you said Darrell <laughs> hill he goes by big homie so he loves his nickname yeah. you got yours yeah maybe 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 yeah maybe that'll maybe that'll become a thing but definitely it goes into my uh, characteristic for sure <laughs> no, that's great well i guess you know as a good way of ending it then in terms of how people can find you and interact with you, speaking of your nicknames, your, your chubby diamonds on mm -hmm. Instagram, how else can people, what's the best way for them to kind of follow your career, interact with you, kind of see the, your personality yeah. coming through on social media? Yeah. I mean, chubby, chubby diamonds is by far and away that the best way to do it. I don't really have any other channels of social media outside of that. I mean, I have like Facebook and stuff, but I don't really go on there anymore. Um, I used to have a Twitter. It may still be up, but I'm not even sure I haven't really used it, but um the majority is chubby diamonds chubby diamonds i i post to chubby diamonds i either post stories or actual posts themselves almost daily there um there's a new subscribe feature so if people want to subscribe and throw me a little cash i'd like that but uh more than anything it's all free you could anybody could check that out and and see what i'm doing and, and everybody will know where i'm at because everybody knows i'm gonna let everybody know where i'm at around the world perfect yeah well, I'm awesome yeah i mean it's been a real pleasure and thank you so much for for coming on and and you know talking to us about your career and also just the ins and outs of, of throwing, but yeah, it's been fascinating. And, and thank you so much. And, and yeah, being a big absolutely, guy. Guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A lot of insight into being, a, into being a over six foot shot putter. Yeah, from <laughs> from, no, from one say, yeah, short king guys. to one, one big guy. You can, you can take that. Short, short king Fuck LLC. I'm, I'm pretty much the CEO of that. That's for sure. <laughs> there you go. Okay, but yeah, like, so I, like I was, like I was saying, guys, I really appreciate it. It's been, it's been a heck of a time. And um, I really love talking about um, my journey and just talking shop overall, just to, to have people enjoy what I'm doing. Awesome. And, and good luck. Yeah, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. There's still a bit of a season left, so let's hope maybe some of them goals uh, get knocked down. Yeah, great. Yeah. Awesome.